Hey guys, it's Sarah, and I am so excited for you to hear from Dr. Chelsea Azarkon today. Dr. Chelsea is not only a naturopathic doctor and has a backstory of coming out of an abusive marriage, but she wrote a book about it and titled it Losing You, Finding Me. Even though I feel like we're friends now and I could easily intro her myself, I just pulled this blurb straight from her website because it's perfect. She says, I have been battling chronic illness since the time I was born, and I tell stories that help people become their healthiest selves. I'm still healing. You are too. As long as we're living, we will be healing. So why not do it together? Health does not equal kale smoothies and yoga 10 times a week. Health happens when you listen to the story your body and heart are telling you and make changes from the inside out. I want to help you make those changes in achievable ways. And just one more thing she wrote that leapt out at me. She said, I carried my story in my body and it made me physically unwell. I think you're going to love what she has to share. Would you mind just explaining a little bit of your relationship story and lay some of the groundwork for your experience as far as that goes? And then we'll talk a little bit more about your job and what you do. Yeah. So I just published a book called Losing You, Finding Me. And it's basically about healing from grief and toxic relationships and finding yourself. So that's kind of the foundation for, you know, where I'm coming from when I'm talking about toxic relationships. I was in a seven year on again, off again, toxic relationship. And um, I met this individual when I was 18 years old. So I was young, I was naive, I had not grown up with a lot of good relationship skills. Um, I had been through, you know, some trauma with men. So I was just kind of like, the perfect storm for somebody with some emotionally abusive tendencies to take advantage of. Um, and I, I completely just lost myself in that relationship as people do when there's emotional abuse happening. It just kind of slowly erodes away at who you are. Um, but I also really loved that person. So it, it was, it was like grieving a death, um, you know, and when it ended because the relationship had changed so dramatically from where my heart had seen it going at the beginning. And so the the book is really about my journey of finding myself again, but it has been a platform for me to kind of educate women about how toxic relationships impact you as a person and impact your health. Because I really have a heart for women to take up space in this world in a bigger way than I think culture and religion have allowed us to for a long time. I really like the way you put that. I don't think I've heard it put that way take up space in this world, especially, you know, when it comes to culture and religion and how, for some reason that just seems to drive people bonkers, but (laughs) like it's, it's a common thing all over the world and throughout history that women seem to be such a problem. Do you mind if I ask how your relationship ended and were you in school at that time? I know you're a doctor now, correct? Mm -hmm. When, how does your relationship in your school timeline match up. I'm I'm curious to know more about that because I know sometimes that can derail things or make it much more difficult or complicated. And it's amazing now that you're using your skills in I, I think your experience and your skills are so powerful together. So I want to know, okay, wait, did you decide to go to school as a result of this or were they happening at the same time? Yeah. Um no I was so I met him actually when I was in college and so I and I was already on the track to go to medical school um and as I had mentioned before we were on again off again for a long time so I think when I started medical school we were talking we weren't at the same place in our faith though because that was another piece of our relationship was a lot of he was all over the board with his faith. He was a theology student when I met him. And then, you know, he just had this, what's the word, like circuitous journey. And so I just kind of knew that at the, where he was at that point, he was just not going to be someone who would be a, a lifelong partner for me. So I kind of had this sinking feeling. Mm. I knew that we weren't going to end up together. And I, I remember this really clearly because after he first met me, he sent me the song called First Day of My Life by Bright, a- Bright Eyes. I don't know if you know that song. It's like a 2000s indie song. And it's like, this is the first day of my life. I was blind before I met you, blah, blah, blah. And I remember like, I, I had this feeling in the pit of my stomach, like I need to like tell him that we can't, we're not, I'm not going to marry him. 
and I was in this, I was like out in this shop uh, buying stuff for my new apartment. And I just heard that song playing and I was like, oh, anyway, though, but I had this hope that like, maybe we'd get back together one day. And it was, this is like, I could do a whole other podcast on what happened in between like a very spiritual, mystical journey. Basically, I came back to a point about my second year of medical school where I felt like okay, we were at a place where we could get back together. And we hadn't really had much contact, but um, he was friends with people in my family. So I knew a little bit about where he was going on. He had reached out a couple of times in a way that I definitely saw some growth and change happening. And just the things I was feeling in my spirit, I felt like we were at a place where we could get back together. So we ended up doing that and we were like, okay, we've been on and off seven years. Let's just do it. We're going to get married and we kind of had this accelerated timeline planned out and it started out really great and like the best we'd ever been. And then it just, you know, ended up in this dumpster fire, horrible ending, everything. He was just a different person at the end. And, you know, my schooling there, there wasn't, that was an interesting piece of things because as often happens with toxic relationships, you know, initially me becoming a doctor was this draw to him like, Ooh, my wife's going to be a doctor. It's so sexy or whatever. And then he kind of started becoming jealous of it. You know, like, I feel like that happens a lot in toxic relationships where the one person is jealous of like the other person having success or having something that is their own. And so, you know, he would say things like, well, you don't come and see me enough, but he wouldn't come to see me. And I was like, well, I'm in medical school. Or if you don't change your schedule, then we're going to break up, you know, weird little things. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have control over my schedule, you know, <laughs> or if you don't change schools, we're breaking up. And that kind of, there was a lot of tension building around that. He felt very possessive over my time. Of course, he spent it romantically. Like, I want to spend all my time with you, but he would never make the effort to come into my world. It was always me coming out of this school world to come into his world. We were planning on getting married. And so he was switching jobs because he had been living in a different city at the time. And I remember telling him, okay, well, you need to look for a job and a place in San Diego because I'm going to be here for two more years. And he got a job in, I'm going to say Los Angeles. I changed some of the locations in the book and that's the location that I went with. But he got a job in Los Angeles and um, it's similar like length from San Diego is the place he actually got a job in. And I said, okay, well, you know, why don't you think about commuting up there or maybe we live halfway. And then without telling me, he just went and got a job. I mean, got an apartment in Los Angeles and said, great news. I got an apartment with the understanding we were going to be married and I would be commuting from Los Angeles to San Diego the next year. So there was a lot of tension around that at the end. I think that really kind of accelerated things to, he got really mad basically about one particular incident of how I decided to spend my time. And that was basically how we broke up. We were kind of trying things on and off after that. And then he ended up seeing I had downloaded was it Hinge? That would be so funny because that was in your story. I can't remember. Yep. Your bubble. I had literally just downloaded it. I hadn't even created like a login for it. And when we were kind of trying to work things out after we'd broken up, he saw that. And that was pretty much the end. We had a couple postmortem conversations, but it was kind of this timeline of tension around my time. And then he, you know, it was unforgivable that when we were broken up, I was even thinking of maybe seeing someone else. So that's how it ended. And there's a lot of that. (laughs) Oh yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure there's just, there's so much more. And then how now in your healing process and coming out of it, you had, you said you had two more years of school left. Yeah. So how did you, how did that affect, did that, did that affect what you wanted to specialize in or what would you, what would you say you're most passionate about now? So I love focusing on chronic illness actually, which is a little bit different from this story. I mean, I've had a lot of chronic illness myself. That's how I got into natural medicine. But one thing that I focus in on a lot is a huge component of chronic illness is trauma 
and toxic relationships. Like I cannot tell you how many people I've seen where their husband's addicted to pornography or he's having an affair or, you know, fill in the blank and they're sitting in front of me with some autoimmune disease. So the other thing that I think when I was going through this process of healing, I didn't realize how much grief I had. I had just closed my heart to grief my entire life. And, you know, it was this huge grief for me. And some people looking on the outside might think, okay, well, it was a breakup. Like, why is this such a big deal to you? But it was like, it opened the door of my heart to like every sad rejection, you know, trauma I'd ever been through. And that got me really interested in the science of grief, how that affects our brain and our health and our development. And then kind of um, tandem with that, I got really interested in how relationships, relationships, breaking healthy relationships impact our health. And that's such a huge piece of healing, especially from chronic stuff. So I do a lot of sharing and educating about that. That's incredible. In fact, you, um, I've been so curious and doing reading here and there on how our bodies store trauma and how it attempts to heal from a cellular level, but oftentimes mentally and physically, there's a disconnect. We're not aware of what's going on. And you posted a reel recently that I actually shared to my stories about trauma and autoimmune disease. Would you yeah. mind explaining a little bit more? Cause I, I've had a lot of people reach out that are just coming out of an abusive or toxic experience. And I had one of the gals that I interviewed put it so perfectly. She said, you know, a lot of people have said, Oh, you're so brave or, Oh, you're so strong, you know, pull yourself out. She goes, it doesn't feel brave. It feels like I am crawling out of a burning house on my hands and knees. And I'd never heard it put that way. And I thought that has to have an effect on the body. So how, you know, from your perspective, how can someone who is in that space mentally that feels like that's where they're at, how can they take care of their body and be aware of what's going on in their nervous system from, from a physical level? What does that look like? Well, that quote that your your friend said, it reminds me of that Winston Churchill quote, if you're going through hell, keep going. Uh, yeah. But I say that because, you know, as far as the body goes, our bodies were designed to discharge traumas physically. So if you think about like a dog who goes through something kind of stressful and it shakes off afterward, their nervous system is discharging a trauma. And a lot of times what happens is, you know, we have these, they're called the autonomic responses. They're from our, our reflexive brain, not so much our cognitive brain, fight, flight and freeze. And we can get stuck in those if the trauma isn't discharged or if it isn't, uh, if it isn't completed. And that can be really common because for a lot of traumas, you know, it might be something ongoing, like maybe you grew up in a household with some really, let's just say emotional dysregulation issues, because that's something I think a lot of people can relate. You know, let's say you just grew up in a household with some emotional dysregulation issues, then suddenly the fight, fight or flees, fight, fight, flight or freeze tongue twister, their response becomes a maladaptive coping mechanism where you do that every time you respond to a stress. And so one, one thing I'd like to bring up here is you know, we have a couple different parts, well, a lot of different parts of our brain, but the two I talk about a lot when talking about trauma is the prefrontal cortex. That's actually like the front of our brain here. And that's kind of where we get rational thinking, cognitive processing. That's what we're engaging in when you're in talk therapy. But where trauma and emotions are stored is your deep brain. And your deep brain reacts, it's reactive, whereas your cognitive brain is analytical. And the deep brain doesn't respond to higher levels of thought. The deep brain is responding instinctually. So it may read a situation that's not dangerous at all, as similar to the situation that was dangerous when you first had trauma. And then it's going to be responding to that in fight, flight, or freeze. Well, that completely changes our physiology when this goes on for a long period of time. And we end up seeing things like autoimmune disease or a lot of different types of diseases, really. Yeah. And I had, I, I think I mentioned this when we first chatted on the phone. Obviously, I have no professional experience, but I worked in a medical office for five years and I would do patients' intakes and learn a lot about their history and get to know them. And then I would see their x-rays and see their symptoms. And I can't remember a time when I would sit down with someone and they would tell me that they were diagnosed with fibromyalgia or an autoimmune disease or something that was unexplained pain or that the body was attacking itself and that there was not a case of emotional struggle or trauma or something else 
mental and emotional combined as well that went back a little ways. Cause we, part of our job was to ask a few questions around that, or sometimes I would find it out later. And I started to piece things together and realized the physical and the mental are not separate. Um, when you mentioned the a prefrontal cortex, cortex, yeah, it made me remember, and I'm not, I'm not going to pick your brain a ton on this, but I have, I've shared this with some people that I know are going to be listening to this. I'd be curious to get your thoughts. Like there were, when it comes to cognitive dissonance, if you're in, in a situation where your sense of reality, like you feel like you're walking on eggshells and your sense of reality might be shaken up a little bit, or someone's not being honest with you. I do remember half of my relationship with my ex, the second half, especially leading up to the wedding, I could not hang out with him and not have a headache. And I started to kind of blame myself. And it was really strange. And I would feel really bad because I would always be really quiet when we'd get together and he'd go, what's wrong with you? Why are you always sick? And I go, I have a headache again, but it only comes when you're here. I'm sorry. It's really weird. I didn't put two and two together until months later that those terrible debilitating headaches were only there as soon as he'd show up. Yeah. Would you say that that is the, the body being in some sort of like protective or fight mode? Yeah, absolutely. I think your your instinctual nervous system was picking up that something was wrong there and mm-hmm. it was create it was putting you in stress, but uh, you know, you were probably perpetuating the stress by your prefrontal cortex. You're you're shutting down the instinctual part. You're ignoring it. And then that was kind of your body tried to alert you in another way with headaches. And I mean, we see that with people who if you're this is why it's so important to talk about these stories to deal with them to heal from them, because if it's always being stuffed down, your um, your instinctual brain is still going to pick up on danger and it's going to alert you in other ways. And sometimes that's physical symptoms. And it's interesting. It's a lot of times this deeper portion of the brain is referred to as the limbic system system because there's a lot of different brain structures communicating involved. And it does have little projections to and from our, our cognitive brain. But the limbic system is involved in regulating, I mean, almost every system in your body, immune system, cardiovascular, endocrine, gastrointestinal, muscle. I, I like to give the example of, of fibromyalgia for this because it's fibromyalgia. I call it a trash can diagnosis. Like a lot of doctors give it when they don't know what else is wrong. But there actually is a true fibromyalgia disease. And it has a certain defining characteristics to it. And one of the characteristics is a history of childhood trauma, because what happens in those cases is the, the, the nervous system is still developing and the trauma impacts the way the nervous system develops. And so that it basically is broken in the way that it detects pain and it detects things that aren't painful as painful. And that's where you get mm. the kind of widespread pain of fibromyalgia. So I think that's like a really good concrete example people can kind of hook onto of the connection between the physical body and the emotional body. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time we're, we're, if anybody's anything like me, we might be truly unaware because we don't, I, I, I think I tend very, I, I use logic so much that I don't even realize that I'm not feeling something. Mm-hmm. I'm not recognizing an emotion. So then my body will respond to something and I'll go, what's this? It's almost like I have this separate distance relationship from my body and, and I'm a little bit irritated mm-hmm. that it's responding a certain way because it shouldn't be in my mind, if that makes sense. And I, yeah. I know a lot of people may not necessarily even be fully aware of stuff that might've happened. I mean, it's our brain's ability to protect us by shutting off, you know, certain or closing doors to certain memories but it might be a hint that their body is talking to them and saying, Hey, there's something that needs to be dug up here. Cause we haven't forgotten. Yeah, this. absolutely. A lot of people talk about, you know, experiencing when you're you know, after a traumatic situation and you're sort of repaving those neural pathways in your brain by going out and making new friends or forming new relationships or dating again, or going back into that experience that was so negative before and rewriting that, but our bodies can still, you know, like you said, they're still interpreting this as a negative or as that past situation where they need to respond that this is, this is time to fight back or, and I know all I have are like my own personal experiences. So I don't want to keep going back. Yours are Um, interesting though. I mean, it's relatable. Yeah. And to, well, and to hear you explain too, is really helpful. And I, again, I'm like, m- my example is the only one that I have, but I do know a lot of people listening have had similar experiences. So they ask, what was it like trying to, you know, navigate a lot of those, 
experiences that felt similar, but they weren't the same with your now husband. Mm -hmm. And there were times when he would say something or laugh a certain way or have a response to something that was very, very similar to the way that my ex did. Mm -hmm. And even though now I know that his motives weren't the same, he wasn't laughing at something because he was laughing at me or putting me down. He was laughing because he thinks I'm entertaining in a lot of ways, but I had only ever heard that type of laugh when it would be followed by, Oh, you're so insert demeaning comment here, whatever. And one time it happened when we were in the car and I knew in that moment, it's, it was, it was like my mind just split in two. Half of me knew with 100% certainty that he did not mean it the way that, that it had come across. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately my neck and my throat were seizing up and I didn't feel like I could talk. So Mm. we kept driving and I knew I was being quiet, but I felt like I was choking and I tears were, you know, right up to here. And like, there was a golf ball in my throat and I just remember the tension hurting so much. And he was like, okay, obviously something is very off here. And we ended up kind of working through it, but I couldn't talk about it until I let the tears go. And I'm embarrassed because now I feel silly and, you know, crying and we've had to work through all that. So it's an, it's been an interesting navigation experience with the physical body as being separate from, you know, my own logic and my own thoughts. Cause I remember saying multiple times, I'm okay. And he was like, you're making this worse by saying you're okay. Clearly you're not okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts around that? How, how would one start to recognize this? And I mean, I, you know, obviously therapy helps as well. And I'll, we can talk about that another time, but what are your thoughts around that? And as far as like the nervous system remembering and the body responding and and what would you recommend as far as, you know, how someone should recognize and take care of themselves through that? Yeah. Well, you did the right thing with crying. I mean, it's, there's two really important components. One is discharging the trauma in the moment. So tears is one of the ways that we're designed to do that. I mean, I think mm-hmm. sometimes well-timed appropriate like physical expressions of anger or upsetness like not at another person (laughs) maybe when you're by yourself right um can be also appropriate physical discharges of trauma too also journaling and I've talked in other podcasts about some of the science behind journaling so there's lots of things that we can do to physically discharge trauma that's number one you have to whatever way your body is wanting you to kind of physically discharge that trauma you got to do that The second piece of it is rewiring the deep brain, which talk therapy can't do. There are certain types of therapies that can stimulate your deep brain to create new neural pathways and a big proponent of those, but also experiences, different experiences rewire the brain, especially when there's other people involved that creates just a new kind of experience for our brain. Because when you go through trauma, your brain tries to organize it in the context of all your life experiences thus far. So Mm -hmm. if your deep brain is picking up on, okay, this laugh is means danger, because up until that point, that laugh always has been danger. It means you're going to be demeaned and you're not going to have a voice. It's trying to protect you. But then when you have feel that trauma, you cry through it, and then there's a different outcome, then the deep brain can start forming new neural pathways. And it's like a road that you keep going down. The more that that happens, and for you, you're blessed that now you're in a healthy relationship. So you have lots of opportunities for that neural pathway to be rewired in a really healthy way, then that pathway will eventually become stronger than the danger path than the danger response. Um, and you can you can have a new reflexive reaction because I think you know one thing I want people to recognize that I don't think people recognize is you know I do believe we have some control over emotions but there's a certain point when you go into your survival brain where you actually don't have control over your emotions and so that's why it's really important to set yourself up for success for your deep brain to continually be rewiring. So when that moment comes, your tolerance threshold increases because, you know, people can do a lot of scary and unhealthy things when they don't have control of their emotions, but on a neurological level, they really don't have control. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. You, so what are, you mentioned, there are some therapies that you are a big proponent of when it comes to uh, the deep brain. Is that correct? Yeah. Can you elaborate on some of that? 
Yeah. So there's a couple. Um, well, I really like somatic therapies, therapies that help you feel where the trauma is in your body. Because again, we are, you know, we're storing trauma in this part of our brain that's very emotional. But trauma does get stuck in our body. There's a really good book on this called Body Keeps the Score. I've yeah, heard of it. It talks about how trauma gets stored in the body. It's like a little more scientific, but that can be really helpful for understanding. So somatic therapies are good because they allow you to feel and discharge trauma in a physical way. As far as the rewiring goes, EMDR is an example of that. Um, I really think brain spotting is supposed to be a little bit more effective than EMDR. Sometimes they mix the two. There's also a therapy called CMR, which kind of combines brain spotting and some somatic therapies. Some people do body spotting, which is where it's like brain spotting, but you're localizing a spot in your body. Basically, what a lot of those therapies are is they take advantage of eye positions mm-hmm. um, and the position of your eye can stimulate di- different processes in your brain in that really deep emotional brain. And then doing certain things with the eye positions can help rewire a lot of times music is layered onto that. So bilateral music, um, which is music at certain frequencies that it alternates certain frequencies to get your brain again to drop down into that more emotional brain. So like, for example, I'll give you an example from my own therapy that I do. I do these. So brain spotting I'll use to really help rewire something in a brain spotting. And we're basically choosing a point for my eyes to hold where the, the trauma, where I feel the trauma or emotion most strongly. And you, I just hold that while listening to, um, to like the bilateral music. But then if I get stuck on something, if I feel like I've been on a certain emotion or a certain thought for a long time, I might move into an EMDR eye pattern because EMDR is basically mimicking REM eye movements, rapid eye movement stage of sleep. And REM um, is really important for formation of memory, for learning, for knowledge consolidation. And so we're kind of hijacking that body process to kind of, okay, how do I speed up processing through this thing I'm stuck on? And then I'll go back to the brain spotting to get it to rewire. So there's a lot of cool things you can do to rewire your brain with that. It's incredible. I, my only, my quick experience with brain spotting was when I was working in a, in a therapy office for a mm-hmm. year, right before I moved. And just as an experiment, my boss said, have you ever seen this done? And yeah. she had no, we, neither of us, she felt terrible later, but she asked me a question and she moved I don't remember if it was her hand or her finger. And she just wanted me to think of, you know, the emotion or feeling that might've been associated with it. She said, what's the time that, you know, this or this, or think of something I thought of, I don't remember when the thought hit, but it was when her hand was in front of my face and this memory hit and my face went white hot and I just burst into tears. And she said, Oh my goodness, what do you feel? And I said, shame. And it just was so, it was in my, it was almost like a physical thing that I just, I couldn't control. And she goes, Oh, honey, honey. I'm so, you know, we were just hanging out in the front office. Right. 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 So clear in that moment that I was a believer and not that I even doubted it ever. But since I was managing the office, she goes, you might want to have some sort of an understanding of what this looks like. That though is a dramatic response. And the only reason I bring that up is because I've had people who have been in my office who have been through like a lot of significant trauma. And they said, well, I've tried brain spotting, didn't do much. And they went to like six sessions. Well, I, I personally, and I would say I have moderate trauma, um, not even links, you know, on the severe end, but kind of more than a little less than a, a ton, um, mm-hmm. would be, you know, I spent a year going every other week to brain spotting, just working on not being able to drop down into the emotion and so for me, it felt like a lot of time, it's like, is this even working? Is this doing anything? I don't feel anything. I don't cry. I don't have any emotion. And then the, the further and further we got, it kind of get to this point where like, well, I feel like I need to cry, but I can't, I just could not, it was, I couldn't let myself be that vulnerable, like having someone watch me cry, somebody else. And eventually I kind of got to some certain points where I was like, okay, then things started moving, then things started showing up. But I just want to drop that because there's really cool experiences like that you can have. And I've had a few of those where it's like all of a sudden the inside of me is churning or I started noticing I'd get itchy every time my brain spotted. I've had some weird things like that, but sometimes it's just really subtle and you do the work over and over again and show up for it. And and slowly, you know, I noticed, oh, I, I can hang with escalated situations a lot longer than I used to be able to. I can Mm -hmm. take a pause and think about whether I want to say something instead of just 
jumping in and saying something, you know, so I start noticing these gradual changes. Yeah, I really like that. I think that's incredibly important to being able to hang in, in escalated situations like that and have control yeah. over your feelings and over your body and yeah. your mind. I also wanted to pick your brain on uh, women's hormones and how those experiences and how our body, you know, being in those different states of mind and everything, how that can have an effect over time on our balance and our moods. And do you have any experience or thoughts around that? Absolutely. I mean, I think the biggest hormone disruptor there with trauma would be cortisol. So cortisol is our stress hormone. And there's a couple things that can happen with cortisol. Cortisol is designed to be released in short bursts to help us respond to a stressor. And then it's supposed to clear. And, you know, it can in smaller amounts, it's also released throughout the day. Like when you're hungry, you release cortisol because you're it's the shadow of starvation. And so you release cortisol um, and cortisol helps you break down blood glucose to hold you until your hunger hormones, you know, you start listening to them and eat. So it's not that we don't want any cortisol, but we want it appropriately. And when you are in chronic stress, whether that be from trauma, or let's just say you're fighting with your husband all the time or whatever, the cortisol will be high all the time. Well, cortisol is an immunosuppressive. It also tells your body to hold on to weight. It increases blood glucose a lot of other side effects of cortisol. I mean, you could, you could go Google like health impacts of elevated cortisol and you'd get a list a mile long. Um, but then the other thing that can happen is that after a while, your adrenal glands, which produce the cortisol, get tired of pumping that out. And so they don't necessarily drop it to the level of like, we're going to have an Addison's disease and you aren't able to to maintain your blood glucose anymore, although I have seen that happen on a couple occasions. But it just gets low enough where you aren't stress resilient and you are kind of tired all the time. You can also gain weight when your cortisol is too low. And then cortisol is an important part of activating thyroid hormones. So then maybe thyroid, thyroid gets a little wonky. Cortisol is secreted from adrenals, which have a small part in premenopausal women, a much more dominant part in postmenopausal women in secreting sex hormones, but also how upregulated we are from cortisol and thyroid is going to affect how we make estrogen and progesterone. And so we can see levels of those change. We can see testosterone levels change. And then we're off to the races with all the female <laughs> hormone issues. I was going to say, don't. Side note, as coming from someone who just got diagnosed with low-level Hashimoto's this week and oh. hypothyroid, yeah. I'm like, oh, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I need to dig into it. So what are, if you were speaking, what's been your experience? And if you had a group of women come up to you now and go, what do I pay attention to? And how can I support my body in this time? Like maybe I can't see someone at the moment, but how should I be what should, what nutrition should I be focusing on? How can I help my body regulate itself as I'm trying to put the pieces back together, if that makes sense? Yeah. Well, there's two things I would say to that. One is a mind body connection. You absolutely have to create time for your body to tap into what you're feeling because it will process. So like when someone goes through a grief or trauma, one of the really important things to heal from that, and I keep saying like grief or trauma, but I, I do want to clarify that I, this can also be applicable to stress because stress unchecked turns into trauma. So it's one of the things that's really important to do for healing is, you know, we talk about journaling, meditating, but it can also just be imagining, daydreaming, or taking a couple minutes where you're still is basically what that equates to. Because when you're still and your brain goes to some of these states, that actually shifts into a creative problem-solving mode. And so when you're in these still states, when you're kind of letting your mind run and letting yourself think, letting yourself feel and process and experience, then your brain will actually generate creative solutions to the problem in front of you that it wouldn't generate just like when you're at the grocery store or, you know, pushing through your day. So that's absolutely essential. The other thing is you have to have a voice. And, you know, I see a lot of women swallow things because they don't want conflict. And I just think conflict is not worse than losing yourself and your identity and your opinions. Mm. And I sometimes will say to women with a thyroid issue, like thyroid is energetically the center of your voice. I mean, your thyroid's right, right over your voice box kind of anatomically. And 
I, I can't say that there's any science to back that up. I mean, maybe there is, and I haven't seen it, but I can tell you that what I've seen in my practice, a lot of women who have thyroid issues have some history of having had their voice shut down for a long time. I think a really good example of this is I had this one patient who was in a marriage with a husband who is addicted to pornography. Um, she didn't feel like she had grounds to leave him because of her religious convictions. Like she wasn't able to recognize that that was cheating on her. And mm. she had been adopted and they had this family home. Like when she was an adult, they had this home that was, they'd raised their children there. Their family had just been anchored there her entire life. And her husband kind of steamrolled her into selling this house. And she didn't realize until after they moved that that was hugely traumatic for her. And as they're moving, autoimmune thyroid disease shows up. And it, it made wow. a lot of sense to me because she had been acquiescing sexually to her husband all these years. You know, there had been this breakdown of intimacy. Sex was just about meeting his needs. And then also there was this trauma of having been adopted, even though she had a really loving family, there is stuff there that your brain has to work through. And suddenly her symbol of a family of togetherness, of stable family, which was this home they had was gone. And what shows up? Thyroid disease. Yeah. A lot to process. <laughs> it's been a common theme in my life. So I, I would not necessarily, I wouldn't disagree with you. I can't, I'm, as you were saying that I'm going, huh. And I love that you mentioned, cause I I've seen this happen many times, the importance of making space because it changes, it changes the space our brain and our, our mind enters into and allows room for creativity and problem solving. And I, I see a lot of people in my life around me and I, and I was forced into this. I didn't want to, we tend to run in ways that we don't realize because we're, there's so much stimulation that's available from our phone, social media, podcasts, TV, whatever. So after something happens, I think our idea sometimes of moving on or of healing, I should say, is moving forward. And we fill the space with stimulation all the time. And we don't, it, I, I'm w watching people in my life right now move so quickly out of what were very stressful scenarios in their lives. And they're just working hard to replace everything without getting still mm -hmm. and looking inward and recognizing what they've just been through. I think a lot of people equate rewriting with healing, but the stillness is incredibly important because you can't just overwrite. You have to uproot at the same time. So we have to go in and find that, recognize it, get it out, if that makes sense, or work through that instead of just continuing to run. So the stillness, I think a lot of people, that's what they use meditation for. I haven't tried that, but I hear a lot of people talk about it. It kind of allows you to get into that creative space and turn other things off. Yeah, I write a lot about that in my book of how I thought that moving on would look like everything was just replaced in a better way. And it actually looked like a lot of silence, a lot of stillness, a lot of processing. And that is really what led to like a lot of a lot of healing. Yeah, I, I had to learn that the hard way. Thankfully, outside of my own efforts, you know, I God just kind of forced me into moving home with my parents. And for the next two years, I couldn't really be as busy as I wanted to. Yeah. So I was, I was really forced to face a lot of things. And what kept me sane was prayer and journaling. And yeah. so when you mentioned the journaling, it was getting it out. And if I could see it on paper, I would feel physically lighter because it wasn't inside anymore. And yeah. I could sort it out, you know, through the writing. I know journaling isn't necessarily everyone's forte, but it definitely, definitely was powerful for me. Yeah, well, it's same thing. It stimulates that kind of creative brain space. But there was a study that was done on patients with HIV, and it actually boosted their immunity to journal. So journaling is really cool. Wow. It can be a very helpful. Tool. The other thing too that I think that was big for me, journaling was a big piece, but also making connections and Having come out of a toxic relationship, you know, one of the patterns of abuse is they get you isolated. And so I, I had like, I had friends there because I'd been living in San Diego for two years, but as a medical school, it was very busy. I didn't have like deep connections, like people who can walk by you when you're 
going through, you know, something traumatic, like a major relationship ending. And so uh, I had, you know, I started making some efforts to reach out to people. And then I had an unfortunate housing situation happen and I didn't have anywhere to live for five months when I was in medical school. I just packed up all my things. I put some of them in a storage unit. The rest of it was in my car. And I kid you not, I had like a laundry box, a kitchen box, a closet box, like all these bins on the back of my car. And I had to, and I'm an introvert and I don't like asking for help. So this was like so painful for five months. I just texted people like, Hey, can I stay on your couch? And how long? (laughs) And I would just jump. Sometimes it was a night. Sometimes it was a week. Sometimes it was a month. Sometimes I was like, not really sure. I'm going to sleep tomorrow night. Who can I hit up? And that was like, really, I think a significant process of healing for grief for me. And I wanted to explain some of the science behind it, because I think it'll help people kind of tie together all the cortisol and the sex hormones. And so when you go through pain, and our brain is a little bit unoriginal at processing pain. So, you know, it can be pain from a car accident versus pain from a breakup versus pain from somebody who actually loved you dying. Your brain is processing that all the same way. And when you go through pain in the short term, your brain will produce that cortisol, which we think of as a bad thing. But in the short term, cortisol increases that brain rewiring that I've been talking about. The the medical term for that is neuroplasticity. So in the short term, cortisol will increase the neuroplasticity. And so what your body produces this spike of cortisol, and it's supposed to drive you to one, come up with new creative solutions so your brain can rewire and adapt to the trauma, and two, to seek out social connection. Because when you seek out social connection, your brain will produce oxytocin, which is your bonding hormone, and oxytocin usually drops after you go through some type of pain. And then that oxytocin, and actually you also produce some dopamine or reward hormone. So you go from having the stress hormone to having connection and reward hormone, and that turns off the cortisol. And you've just gone through this really beautiful process of generating creative solutions, finding social connection that will support you. And then the chronic stress is stopped and your brain is now adapted to this new situation. Now that can happen over and over again in the period of moving through a grief or trauma. But if that doesn't happen, then the cortisol will stay high if you don't get that social support, if you don't give yourself the time to let your brain generate those creative solutions, then the cortisol stays high and it will actually turn off neuroplasticity. So you start to become stuck in this trauma loop. And then cortisol imbalances, whether low or high, will interfere with your sleep. And sleep is where a lot of our consolidation of a trauma into making sense with our past experiences and also are generating creative solutions to this new way of living happens. And so if you if you don't kind of have that social support, have that space to process, then your body actually kind of shifts into not just you're not healing, but it's kind of disrupting all the processes that would help you heal. So would you say that because my first thought when you talked about how like after your breakup and you're moving out of this apartment, you had nowhere to live. My, my very first thought was, Oh my goodness, this sounds like the worst possible scenario. But would you say in the end, it helped you being in those social situations, having to step outside of your comfort zone and connect with people? Or would you say it made things more difficult? No, it was the best possible situation. (laughs) It was extremely difficult. I mean, you know, at the moment, it was like really traumatic. But when I look back at that, it does not feel like a trauma to me. You know how like when you look back at certain things, I've done the work around this, but there's always this part of me that feels a little rattled when I think back about X, Y, or Z situation. I don't feel that way when I think about this. I think, wow, God was like really at work. And even though it didn't look like it made sense to me, I was, I never slept in my car, not a single night. I always had somewhere to sleep. I think a lot of the relationships that I came out of medical school with were formed during that time. And I think that was because I don't think I would have reached out for social connection at the depth that I needed. Like, I don't think I knew how deeply I needed to be supported in the situation of grieving this person who had been my whole world. And it forced me to reach out and not only reach out, but reach out in a very vulnerable way. But because I was seen in such a vulnerable way, not just seen, but I was cared for in a very vulnerable way. You know, people are opening their homes to me and like, can I make you an espresso this morning? Or we're having dinner together. You know, it created like a safety. I think it kind of microwaved 
me relearning safety and relationship, which, you know, I hadn't had a lot of safety and relationship up to that point, especially coming off the heels of a not safe relationship that I got into in the first place because of my experiences with not a lot of safety and relationship. So, yeah, that's true. You were kind of forced into multiple scenarios where people actually took care of you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and looked out for you. Yeah. And I, I, I felt like moving home at that point was moving backwards. I thought this is the very last thing I should be doing. I should be proving my independence. I had a point to make. I should be being the strong person that my ex and the fake people that he made up claimed that I wasn't, you know, right, but this right. would be doing exactly what they accused me of, which is depending on mom and dad. You know, it was so twisted for me when in reality, that was the safety net, the cocoon that helped me. It wouldn't let me isolate myself because my first gut instinct, actually, I wanted to move to Tennessee right after that. And I thought later I realized, you know, there was still a tiny part of me that was saying, mm, this would be running. This wouldn't be healing or starting over for, for me personally. I know it looks different for everybody, but for me, it would have been, let's do something really new, really fast so that I don't have to feel any of this. I can be really distracted with starting a new life rather yeah. than un unpacking everything. And so I was forced to get still and quiet and be in a consistent environment, show up to work with people that knew and loved me that had been there, that had met him, that had been through the whole thing with me. Sometimes it felt like, oh my gosh, I can't get away from this. I'm always going to be the girl that failed kind of thing, but that wasn't it at all. Right. It's, it's amazing how looking back, the mess is of the healing part is really what you need. Yeah. If you, if you don't want this to really follow you, yeah. you have to go through it. Yeah. Well, I remember when my relationship ended, my ex never grieved me. And I mean, we'd broken up a lot of times and he would never grieve me. He'd always, you know, jump into a life, jump to bed, you know, with mm -hmm. some other girl. And I remember like literally the week we broke up and this was, we broke up in the month that we had been planning to get married in. So and literally the week we broke up, he posted this photo on Instagram or I don't know, like back then Snapchat, we were, we're still on yeah. those platforms. Yeah. And it was of like him on a date with another girl. But I remember he didn't show her face. It was like a girl with a coffee cup and not the whole face. And it really bothered me because even when we were like working at rings, planning wedding dates, he never really posted photos of me on his social media. And, and not in a way that I felt like I needed that to validate my confidence. I've never been someone who's like, I, I need our relationship to be on social media official to go public. It was just a little weird that like, even when he would be visiting me and be posting things we were doing, he'd always leave me out of whatever he posted. And I, it just felt like a little weird to me. But I, I didn't, you know, not wanting to be like the insecure girlfriend and also having a myriad of much bigger problems that really took my focus, I kind of let it slide. But then it felt so, I was like, this was so intentional that he posted this the week that we broke up. And I called his sister that week and I'm not still in contact with his family because they, I wouldn't say have been the most supportive, but even his sister was like, yeah, I asked him what the hell was that? And so I, you know, there was this part of me moving on that was wanting to keep pace with him, you know, like you need to prove that I'm over things too. But then there was this other part of me that it was like, we were so close to being married. It only felt natural that I should be getting married again soon. You know, it was kind of like, okay, well, there was so much unhealthiness here. Woohoo. I'm glad this is over, but I'm ready. To, I'm ready to get married. So who, who can I find? And that, so I started, you know, doing all the online dating and, you know, just going to everything as fast as I could. And there was just, it just didn't feel right. And, you know, eventually my, I got sick and my body just kind of couldn't handle the pace of things anymore. And then I started kind of being forced to kind of drop down into, okay, why doesn't this feel right to me? And what do I really need? And I realized I actually needed to grieve him because I loved him, you know? Mm -hmm. There was still a natural order of things to go through that you had to face. He's choosing not to, or maybe has turned that off. Right. But it will catch up eventually if you don't. Right. Was there anything else that you felt was important or that you are passionate about that you want to discuss or throw out there? 
I'm just happy to answer questions. The only thing that I know we talked about at our phone call that I wonder, and I don't really have like a specific vision of what I would say about this, but how like trauma affects women's sexuality. I think that can come up a lot. I think, you know, like a lot of times we'll all see is women will have gone through a trauma and, you know, like they enter into a long-term partnership, whether that's marriage or they're just have like a significant other that they're intimate with. and. I think, you know, life naturally becomes stressful and that kind of erodes away libido because uh, I, I actually would say what I have seen be a more, everybody thinks like, oh, I have low libido, it must be low testosterone. But the thing that I've seen impact libido more is actually low cortisol, which means long-term stress has eroded away your libido. And I also think a lot of times sex doesn't feel safe to women after a period of time. Like, in the short term, women can, you know, sex can be exciting and there's enough of like those connection and reward hormones flowing in the early stages of relationship that the reward is worth the risk. But then, you know, when you've been sleeping with the same person for certain years and there's a lot more stress in the relationship, then, you know, sex is a very vulnerable, it's a vulnerable thing no matter how long you've been with somebody. and the, I think it starts not feeling safe to the deep brain anymore, you know, because it's being seen, it's being known, or at least being in a physically vulnerable position. Um, and I think a lot of women don't realize that's going on. They're just, I'm tired. I'm just not that interested. I don't have low libido. Or sometimes I'll see women who have been through trauma and they say, I've never really had a libido. I've never really been that interested. And so I think it's a really interesting intersection of hormonal deficits but also relationship moving into different stages and that changing the way that your your deep brain is perceiving intimacy. Well, yeah. And it's almost like, I mean, our, again, it's, it comes back to our body is in a state of stress that we might not necessarily be aware of. Right. And I mean, I do know, I, I can't speak to that area as far as my relationship with my ex goes, because that wasn't a part of our relationship. Yeah. Although he played a game where he would withhold affection. Mm-hmm. Minded that too. A lot of the people that I've talked to that I've recorded conversations with for the podcast, their the intimacy side was a major factor in their relationship, but there was a lot of trauma, control, and abuse as far as that goes as well. Whether they were things against their will, situations where they did not feel safe or it was used against them. Well, I think for a lot of women who have been through sexual abuse also, I mean, there is some danger feeling in sex. And I think sometimes as women get older and their hormone change, their hormones change their body. And especially if, you know, life is just stressful, they'll start to kind of put on fat to be less sexually attractive. And that, uh, you know, registers with their brain as safety. And then their husbands are kind of degrading them for it because a lot of times they're not in super healthy relationships. And then the degradation makes intimacy feel even less safe. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, your maybe your fat cells synthesize estrogen. So then you're becoming estrogen dominant, which is making the fat holding on to fat worse. You know, that's another thing that I see a lot with hormones and trauma and sexuality in women. But I, I mean, there was definitely some, I had wanted to actually talk to you about this and I'd forgotten to ask you about it, that, that pattern of kind of like claiming you as, as a possession, like an ex doing that before getting married, because my, this was a really big thing that was a problem in my past relationship was a lot of physical pressure for things that I wasn't comfortable with. And my ex, like as soon as we'd break up, he'd go in like, I mean, he had a really big number. I, it got to a certain point that somebody told me how many people he'd slept with. And I was like, I just don't, I don't want to know anymore. Like, I don't want to know. And oh, it should have been a red flag because when I met him, there were two things that should have been a red flag. One was he would take pictures of like topless models. And I was just like, well, it's just, you know, that's what is in his industry. The other thing was he actually had taken multiple psychiatric evaluations for different jobs he'd been at. And he tested high on the narcissist scale. And it was just like, oh, ha ha, he's a narcissist. But, you know, it was like one of those things that was like, it's a joke. He's not really. Now I look back and like, if someone tells you they're a narcissist, you should probably run for the hills. 
<laughs> believe them, especially yeah. if it's on paper in a formal test. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, though, so that was like, you know, naive, innocent me. So I should have known there was something there. And then, of course, every time we break up, he'd be like sleeping with a bunch of different women. And then when we're together, there was all this physical pressure for things that I didn't want. But one of the straws that broke the cables back for me was there was something like that he wanted to do physically. And he drafted up a contract and was like, you need to sign this, that you're going to do this. And there were a couple other things on the contract, like you can't talk to these people anymore. And if you don't sign it by 8pm, we're over. And I was kind of I was panicking. So I'm calling anyone I can think of. Is this normal? Nobody's answering. So I finally got into this guy who like wasn't actually a counselor, but he kind of did counselor stuff. And I was like, maybe it's just me. So I have this conversation with him. He didn't really say like that the contract was unhealthy. So I don't know why he didn't because I think to any healthy person, it's pretty obvious. So I'm like, okay, whatever, whatever. We can do this. I guess I'll try it. Then we're leaving for dinner and it's like 6 p.m. And he brings over a pen and he goes, hey, we're not going to be back before 8 p.m. And I just was kind of like, are you kidding me? Like he wanted a formal signature and I signed the stupid thing. But I remember after that happened, I just didn't feel the same way about him anymore. Like, I think just immediately my body shut down, my deep brain nervous system shut down love. And like, in my head, I'd loved him for so long. It was like, it'll come back, it'll come back. And it never came back. And I remember being having any type of physical relationship with him after that. It didn't feel good to me. I just felt sick in my stomach. It wasn't enjoyable. And then the other thing that happened around that time was he told me, when we get married, we need to be having sex 12 times a week. And I was like, well, that's a big goal. But I, you know, and this was me at the time. I thought, well, I want him to know that I love him. I I don't want him to feel desired by me. So I was like, okay, well, if that's a serious goal, like maybe we should, we should think about scheduling some of that, you know, because we might have other things to do. And he was like, no, we're not going to schedule it. That's too unrealistic. I was like, we're going to schedule it, but we have a number of 12. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, well, we have like day jobs. And if we're having sex that much, like, and it wasn't just like, okay, we're going to go on a honeymoon. And, you know, maybe you're just really rocking it because you're really feeling it. It's like, literally every week of our marriage that needs to be the expectation I was like well if we're if we're doing that all the time we're probably gonna have some babies to take care of and other things to do you know so there was that kind of like red flag sexual trauma obsession I I don't want to say sexual necessarily but physical relationship you know red flag piece definitely some sexual issues on his part yeah if there are things that you're uncomfortable with it's definitely something to pay attention to Right. And for me that, I mean, that wasn't even like, it was just physical relationship. It wasn't even necessarily sexual, but that still, I think that should still be a red flag. Yeah. And it's interesting to see. And you said when, now you weren't aware necessarily of just how many people he had been with, right? Right. Like I knew he had slept with a lot, but it kind of would come out gradually before we got together. Okay. I slept with this person and blah, blah, blah. And this person, and it was like, okay, well, I would have rather you had not, but you know, but we're gonna move forward. And then it was like, every time we broke up, there were all these women, he'd accumulate a few more. And, you know, I'd have friends or family go, do you, do you think that he's just using you and like, breaking up to, you know, do what he wants with like other women? No, no, no. You know, he just, he, he has some issues here, which clearly had some issues in that department. But I just was giving a lot of grace. And then kind of near the end, someone was like, do you want to know how many women he's actually slept with? And I'm like, is it more than this number? And I think it was like a three digit number. And they're like, do you really want to know that? And I could tell by their answer, I did not And I said, no, no, I don't. Yeah. It is interesting to see how this does factor into so many of these of similar relationships. It's, it's almost always, at least from the experiences that I've heard of and conversations I've had, it's almost always a part of it. And what's interesting is even though, like even in mine, in my relationship, as minor as that was when it came to our relationship, I found out later he had been texting other women and dating other women while we were together, while we were shopping for rings and everything. And 
sending, trying to get other women to participate with him over the phone, whether it was via texts, <laughs> sexting, <laughs> um, sending photos. I knew this girl was telling the truth because she explained in detail where he was on his patio in his hammock at his apartment when he had sent her a nude picture. And I thought, okay, there's no way she would have known, you know, that he has a hammock on his patio with his dog and all this stuff. And um, there was a pornography addiction. There was just so much more going on under the surface. And there's no way of knowing when, I mean, eventually that had to have, it would have come to the surface to some degree. There was just, it's interesting that he knew better than to ask that of me and our relationship, but he was still getting it somewhere else. So it was just kind of like this back and forth situation going on, I guess, when he was on again and off again with other women. And I would later on looking back, see a pattern of when we were doing better and, and kind of like not more serious, but he was like consistent with certain things and then things would shift. And then later looking at the timeline, I'm like, oh, that's probably when he was up all night dating, you know, talking to so-and-so and doing this and mm -hmm. very, very busy individual. Yeah. And all of that just, uh, I mean, all of that makes intimacy feel unsafe to women. And I think that affects cortisol and then that goes and affects your libido and your stress hormones. And it's really interesting because those kind of behaviors are so degrading to women. But if you look at it, like even on a chemical basis, like degrading to our sex hormones, degrading to our hormones that help drive a lot of our femininity, you know, it's just crazy how it's reflected on even such a physical basis. Well, and we are, I mean, for us, that connection is so emotional and is so mental. It's different, you know, for women than it is for men. Not that men don't have an emotional connection at all, but it is, it can be different. I really, you know, I feel that they can turn that off more effectively. So mm -hmm. if we do feel unsafe or if we do, even in our subconscious sense that something isn't right, we can't connect in the same way. And then I feel it's just a self-perpetuating problem that's going to make itself worse. Right. And then I think our bodies actually kick into a physiological state to make us less sexual, what we deem as sexually attractive. And then a lot of times unsafe partners take issue with that. And then that just worsens the process because yeah. intimacy is feeling unsafe again. So, yeah, but it's a vicious cycle. So, what would you say to someone then who is maybe entering into a new relationship and is struggling with that? What are the ways that they can support themselves or that a partner could support them as well in feeling safe and rewriting that? Struggling with intimacy, feeling unsafe? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I would say take your time and don't jump into anything. I mean, I think. I think it's important to give time to see who somebody really is. And, you know, when I say intimacy, whatever that means to you, whether that's like just physical relationship or whether that's, you know, a physical relationship on any level or whether it's like sex, I think if physical relationship is takes bonding to another level. And so I think you need, I think it can cloud the judgment of the nervous system. There were physical lines in my relationship with my ex that I didn't cross. And I look back and I, he hated it, but I think I'm really thankful for that because I don't think I would have ever gotten out of that relationship if I hadn't mm. had those boundaries in place because it, we would have been too bonded. And so I think I'm really a big proponent of your physical bonding matching the level of emotional bonding that you have. And I don't mean the level of emotion you feel for someone because in early relationship, the you're going to feel like bonded to somebody off the charts. But when you look at the real things that make up a relationship, like sacrifice and solid communication, listening, honoring the other person and who they are, do you have the relationship to sustain the physical activity that's going on there. And then mm -hmm. I also think following the path, I think anytime we kind of follow what nature is supportive of, we do better. And, you know, I think if you think about intimacy in the context of intimacy that can lead to pregnancy, there, there's not a lot of great contraceptive methods that really are good for females. And I think if you can, are kind of following the pattern of nature, it's definitely more supportive of reserving that type of intimacy for somebody you'd actually want to have a child with, you know, and that can be a controversial opinion. Some people may think differently, but I do think if you strip all that down and take it to the very least, I think shifting physical relationship as a tool to reinforce 
relational, reinforce healthy relationship stuff that's already there, rather than trying to make you feel connected in a relationship that doesn't have the groundwork. Because it can make you, Mm. it can shortcut work and make you feel very grounded and very connected. But though, you know, anytime you have a big rush of hormones or neurochemicals, whether that's from sex or alcohol or, you know, kissing or whatever, that's not sustainable. So you need to make sure the things that are going to sustain those are in place. So you're giving a very brilliant and scientific explanation of not why it's important to not get the cart before the horse (laughs) (laughs) and not even coming from a, you know, I know a lot of people listening know that I'm a Christian and, you know, so are you. And the Christian lifestyle preaches, you know, to abstain from sex before marriage. And there are other reasons, but even just separate from that, there are very scientific, chemically important reasons that it is wise to wait to some degree, what, you know, to whatever degree, you know, people's beliefs are, I'm like speaking to people that don't necessarily subscribe to Christian lifestyle, but we do try, I think early on any level of physical connection is a a way we feel like we're getting to know that person on a deeper level, that it's solidifying that connection and that intimacy, but it does cloud judgment. So if everything else is not there yet, it is important to wait that that timing does matter. Yeah. I mean, I think I would say for people to just be mindful of that. I think there, I've definitely seen what happens when people think that abstinence is the one answer and they don't really believe that and they try to implement that and their heart's not in it. Like, I don't think that ends up being a healthy thing. So I think people need to kind of take the concept that I'm talking about it and apply it to what does this look like in the healthiest way for where I'm at and where my convictions are at. Mm. Because I, I think it really is more about, it's not so much about what you're doing and not doing as it is about how am I making my heart vulnerable or protecting my heart through that. Although I do think that there is some relational physical benefit in abstaining, but uh, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Yeah. But you've made a really good point. I think younger people as they're stepping into the dating world and it's all new and exciting. And, you know, especially girls that are, haven't been pursued before or treated certain ways before. And I'm thinking back to when I was young and clueless and I had a lot of head knowledge, but not a lot of experience. So all of this is really, really good to hear. Yeah. Thank you. I have been so excited. I was excited all day for our conversation and as you were talking, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, I have so many other questions. <laughs> keep going because you are just a wealth of information, but you have an amazing way of communicating it. That's very, at least for me, like very easy to picture in my head. So it's easy to digest. It makes sense to me. So I'm really excited to share this and get people connected with you. If you're okay with that, I would love to direct them to whatever's best, whether it's your Instagram or your website. How can, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, thank you so much. So naturally, Dr. Chelsea is my Instagram. And I share like a lot of the educational pieces that we've talked about here. I shared in more digestible formats on there. And then if you check out my website, you can purchase my book there. Uh, We're working on getting it on Amazon. But right now we're doing like a early release launch through my website. And then I have some like free resources there and other educational tools and, you know, supplements if you want to kind of support the biological side of things. So whatever, whichever platform works best for what you're wanting to learn more about, you can find me at both of those places. I'll definitely put you your information in the show notes and tag you on social media. And I have looked over your posts and you are a wealth of information and you do make it really easy to digest. So well, thank you. I'm to share more of that. that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for being here, for subscribing, and for coming along with me as I learn the world of podcasting and this community takes shape. I have so many incredible stories coming next that honestly, I'm having a hard time waiting each week to share the next one with you. If you found value in these conversations and you haven't already left a review, it would mean the world if you took a quick moment to write one or just share this with a friend who would appreciate it. And if you found this episode to be impactful, post about it on Instagram and tag me at space and purpose. I would love to hear from you. 